Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 25, 1-13. This is the word of God. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. To you uh, bow your heads with me in prayer, please? God, we thank you for this passage this morning. Um, what a powerful series of illustrations that Jesus has given us as it relates to his coming and the final judgment. Uh, Lord, there's much for us to learn here this morning. There's much for us to apply. But God, I, most of all, Father, I just pray um, that as we look into these scriptures, God, that you would just... Um, enlighten the eyes of our hearts that you would uh, just inflame, in a sense, the, 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 the fire in our hearts for you, knowing, God, how good you are, as we see that through this passage this morning. Amen. You may be seated. Well, when I was, I was either 9 or 10, I don't remember exactly when it was, but uh, in that time of my life, I kind of had a habit um, leading up to Christmas, I had a habit of trying to find the gifts that my mother had hidden around the house. Now, I know nobody else ever did that. I'm the only one who ever did anything like that. But my thinking was, why wait for Christmas morning when with a little bit of searching, I could know what I was going to get now? Right? I mean, so I, one time I was doing this, I found a really cool paintball gun hidden in the closet. She didn't hide it very well, by the way. And it was the one that I had specifically asked for for that Christmas. Well, Christmas morning comes, and uh, I'm looking for the paintball gun. I'm looking forward to all my gifts, but especially that. Well, I open the first one, no paintball gun. I open the second gift, no paintball gun. I open all my gifts... And there's no paintball gun. And I'm like, that is really weird. So I kind of say to my mother, I'm like, Mom, um, are, are there any other gifts? She says, no, that's it. Well, years later, I'm kind of telling her this story. And she says, I knew that you were looking for that last gift, but I had returned it. I didn't want you to have a paintball gun after all. <laughs> so... The moral of the story is that I wasn't very good. I was not very good at waiting. And frankly, I'm still not. Um, And Jesus knows. Jesus knows that I'm not unique. Waiting is hard. 
Tom Petty fans will recognize today's sermon title, Sometimes Waiting is the Hardest Part. In Matthew 25 here today, Jesus continues his Olivet Discourse. And he zeroes in on a theme that started in verses 36 through 51 in chapter 24. And it's that his return is both imminent and unknown. You might even say it's imminent and it's delayed. It could be at any moment, but it might also be for a very, very long time from even now. And he uses two parables and a teaching about the final judgment to make his point. And this is his point. This is my I think kind of Jesus' thesis, what I hope to persuade you of this morning. Kingdom people anticipate King Jesus' return by being prepared, productive, and proven. So let's look at the first point in your outlines, the wise and foolish virgins. Before we can get the most out of this parable, it helps to understand these ten virgins Daniela was kind enough to read for us. It helps us to understand You know, what their situation was. Where were they? Um, Why were they waiting? So, first of all, it's important to understand that weddings in those days were different than weddings today. So, the way it worked was uh, there would be a feast at actually the bride's household. And usually it was a pretty small affair. And then from the bride's household, there would be a wedding procession to the groom's household. Or maybe it was the the groom's parents. But that's kind of how it worked. You started over at the bride's house, a smaller feast, a procession to the groom's house, and then a huge feast. And depending on the wealth and the resources of that family, that could be a days-long fiesta. I mean, it might last a long time. And so um, it was at the bridegroom's house where these virgins went to wait. The bridegroom and the bride were on their way. And an important part of that celebration then is when they arrived to greet them with these torches. So the virgins brought their lamps And the five wise brought some oil for their lamps. And note that, again, the five brought oil and five didn't. And we have to stop and ask ourselves um, about the ones who didn't bring oil. What exactly, what was their plan? Right? I mean, they know that coming to greet the bridegroom, that you hold your lamp aloft like a torch. And the only way to keep that lamp lit was with oil. So what exactly was their plan? Well, they had no plan. They weren't thinking. They were foolish, as Jesus says. Now, we might think of fools as people who just make bad decisions. But, but if there's one defining feature of a fool, it's that he or she doesn't think ahead. They don't think about consequences. There's no forethought. They live in the moment, and their desires control them. And that's why we often call a child's behavior foolish. They don't think ahead. They're just living in the moment. And so the virgins are at the bridegroom's house. They're waiting for him to get there. Maybe they arrived at 6 p.m. and expected him to be there by 8. Well, 8 comes and goes, no bridegroom. 9 comes and goes, no bridegroom. 10 p.m., they get drowsy, and they fall asleep, and they're out of it. And then the next thing they know, it's midnight, and someone is shouting, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Now is the moment when the bridal party goes out of the house to meet the bridegroom with their torches held aloft. But the unwise, as Jesus says, they're not prepared. They have no oil. And in a selfish and rash act, they ask the, the wise virgins, hey, give us some of your oil that we can light our lamps too. But the wise say no. And that's not from spite or malice. It's simply because they only have enough oil for themselves. 
And so off they go, the unwise, to the market to get oil. And while they are gone, the bridegroom comes. He enters the house. The door shuts and the party begins. The foolish virgins show up begging to get in, but the bridegroom says, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Perhaps an unlikely turn of events at a typical wedding, but that's not really Jesus' point. His point is for this parable about the kingdom of heaven. And so he concludes with his main point, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, I don't think there's too much mystery here on what Jesus' point is. He, He wants us to be prepared for his return. But how do we do that? Well, there's a few things that I would highlight for you. Number one, all who profess Christ have something in common. They are on their way to meet Jesus. But here's the thing. Point number two, not everything is the same. Not every person is the same. Not all who profess Christ are actually Christians. Some profess Jesus as Lord as a pretense for holiness, but they do not actually follow him. They don't actually prepare. They want the benefits of the kingdom, but they don't actually want Jesus the king. That's number two. Number three is preparedness is not transferable. I can't transfer my preparedness to my wife, nor can she to me. Just like the wise virgins had no excess oil to give the foolish virgins, so it is with the kingdom. A spouse you may be married to a person who is a devoted, devoted, excuse me, devout and devoted follower of Jesus. That doesn't mean anything for you. That means nothing for you. That doesn't gain you entrance into the kingdom. You may be the child of a parent who loves Jesus and has given their life in service to him. That doesn't, none of that goes to your account. There is no transferring of preparedness from one person To another. And then lastly, number four, there is no second chance with the kingdom. There is no purgatory where you can get more oil and gain entrance. When you die, or if Christ returns before you die, and you are not fully in Him, you've not trusted Him for your righteousness and for salvation, the door is closed and will never be open again. Wesley Brown was the first black graduate from the U.S. Naval Academy, class of 1948. He didn't come from much privilege, he, um, uh, and he wasn't very good at chemistry. And for those who may not be aware, every freshman at the Naval Academy has to take two semesters of chemistry, and it's pretty difficult. And so he had to, um, because he was kind of starting behind maybe some of the other midshipmen, he uh, had to uh, really apply himself in his daily homework. Well, he worked very hard, and the final exam was approaching, and his hope was, effectively, I've got good enough grades right now that if I can just get a passing grade, if I could just get a D on this exam, I'll be okay. I'll pass chemistry, and I can move on to my second year. Well, he had a terrible headache the night before, uh, the worst headache he, he had ever had. The night before the exam, he went and got some medicine from the doctor, took the medicine, and fell fast asleep. Next thing he knows, he wakes up, it's Reveille. He has not studied at all for this exam. Well, there's nothing else to do but to sit and take the exam. So this is what he says. Do you know, what, do you know that I aced that exam? And you know what it was? He says, don't cram for exams because you get so mixed up 
trying to jam something in that you don't get much out of it. Don't cram. Go to sleep, he says. And this is the point. The time to study for finals is every single day. And it's the same thing with the kingdom. The time to prepare for Christ's return is not when you hear he's coming back because you're not going to know. The time to prepare is every single day. Point two in your outlines now, the diligent and lazy servants. Now, this is called the parable of the talents. I think that's terribly confusing, um, if I may say so. Um, that's how we all know it, but, but frankly, it's really more about these servants. Let me just read the, uh, these verses for you. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. There's a lot of scripture to cover, uh, so let me just read it for you to anchor you in the word. Starting in verse 14, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And I think sometimes it's helpful before we get too far into these parables to kind of have the answer key, you know, so to speak. So just a couple of things here. First, if it's not obvious, the master is Jesus, okay? And then secondly, the servants are his church, his kingdom people, or at least people associated with his church. That's the first thing. Second, we must level set that a talent, and this is how I, you know, not, to, not too long ago, I always thought of it this way, that a talent refer, uh, referred to like your talents, your gifts, like, hey, I can play the piano really well, or uh, I could teach, or, you know, whatever these things are. That's not at all what this is actually about. A talent refers to the weight of a precious metal. So it's a, it's a measure of weight, a talent. It's actually 75 pounds in today's measurements, to just give you a sense. So what's actually happening here is the master is giving bags of money, and I'm gonna, it could be silver, I'm going to go with gold. He's giving to one servant a bag of 75 pounds of gold. To another one, two bags that weigh 150 pounds, and to the last one, 375 pounds of gold that he's giving to these servants. Just to give you a sense of dollars, because that's, I think we all realize that's a lot of money, but just to put a number on it, um, 75 pounds of gold would be about $2.3 million, today's dollars. Uh, 150 pounds, so the two talent guy is about $4.6 million, and then the five talents is about $11.5 million, where gold is currently trading at about 1900 an ounce. So back to the story. That just hopefully level sets you as we go into this. A master is going on a long journey, and he decides to give some of his money to his servants. Now, he knows his servants well, and he gives them what he thinks that they can actually manage based upon their kind of unique gifts and their unique circumstances. Now, now note what the first one does. Note what he says. Jesus says, he went at once and traded with them. He didn't delay. He didn't wait, he got to work. Now, anyone who has spoken with an investment advisor may remember the idea of compounding returns. The idea is that the sooner we have a slide, actually, if we could bring that up. I mean, you know, I'm a finance guy, so I couldn't help myself. Here's a spreadsheet for you. And you may not be able to see this well, but this is showing you the power of compounding terms. I think it's a, a super interesting illustration. So the top row is somebody who started investing $2,000 a year when they were age 23, and they put $2,000 a year into their savings account, to their IRA or whatever, 
for 10 years, okay? The second person didn't start saving until they were 33, so they didn't save anything in those first 10 years. But then they saved every single year $2,000 all the way until they were 65. And now when they're age 65, assuming an average annual return of 7%, which is safe to assume that, they effectively have the same amount of money, about, I think it's about $275,000 in their retirement account. One person saved $20,000, the other one saved $68,000, but they got a much later start. My point is this, and I think Jesus' point is this, the sooner that we get started investing his gifts, the more that those returns can compound over time. And there's a second lesson from the financial markets as well. Anyone who has invested money in the stock market knows the trade-off between risk and reward. The safe thing to do, of course, is to put it in the bank, is to invest it in U.S. Treasury bonds where you're guaranteed some kind of return. But to actually gain a reward on financial assets, something must be risked, right? In the stock market, the reward is at growing value. Of course, the risk is losing that value. If you pick the right company, it could be very financially rewarding. If you pick the wrong company, it could be financially devastating. I think this servant may have felt some of that same risk-reward dilemma. I can do nothing with the master's money, ensure that it all is here when he returns, or I can risk some of what he's given me and make more with it. And the story tells us that he deemed the rewards far greater than the risk of failure because he went at once and traded and doubled his master's money. And so too with the second servant. He traded the two talents and doubled the master's money. Now, the last servant took the master's one talent, his 75 pounds of gold. He dug a hole in the ground, threw the money in it, and covered it over. Now, interestingly enough, this was actually an acceptable practice in those days. Um, people would bury valuable goods. You may recall the story of the pearl of great price, right? The man finds this pearl of great price buried in a field because somebody had this pearl and buried it there, right? So this was, in some ways, an acceptable way to, to manage a valuable item, but there's a fundamental problem with this guy's approach. Let's get back to the story, verse 19. If you've got your scriptures open, I invite you to read along with me. Verse 19, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What a joyful moment, is it not? These two servants had worked hard. They've traded the money that their master had given them to steward, and they did really well. And both servants are actually eager. They're actually eager to settle accounts with the master. I, our translation, I don't think, does it, does it justice when they, when they say, Master, you delivered me five talents here. I, don't, I think that's, it's better. Here it would imply it's kind of like, okay, here, here's your money back. No. It's more like, see, Look, behold, I was able to take the five talents that you gave me, and, and I made five talents more, Master, here. Look at what I was able to do for you with your riches. It's a joyful moment. And look at what the Master says. Well 
done, good and faithful servant. This is really quite remarkable. In fact, one of the commentators that I read said, we do ourselves a disservice when we read servant here, that really the term should be slave. Now, of course, not everybody agrees with him, but let's say he's right. We're talking about a master saying to his slave, and now we need to be careful, slavery back then was not like it was in the United States. It's much different. Nevertheless, it was somebody owned by somebody else. That makes this all the more remarkable. The master is delighted. He's overjoyed. He's even ebullient. The master is invested in his servant's success. It's like the servant's success was his own success. It's like he's saying, I knew. I knew you could do it. I believed in you. That's why I gave you five talents. That's why I gave you two talents. Because I knew you could do it. But he's not done. See what he says next. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. This is the second profound thing, I think. He invites these servants, these slaves even, into his joy. What kind of master would ever do something like that? I think a quick reading, and we might miss the unusual nature of doing something like this. It's unexpected. What kind of master invites his bondservants to share in his rewards? Of course, Jesus is no ordinary master. Note that he says the same thing. This is important. Note that he says the same exact thing to both of these servants. It's not like to the guy he gave the five talents to, that he was like, you really did well. Two talents, that guy, you did pretty good too. No. Same exact words to both servants. And why is that? It's not a coincidence. Jesus is saying it's not about how much you've been given. It's what you do with what you are given. He knows that circumstances, where he allowed you to be born, what time on earth he had you to be born, what family you were born into, these kinds of things. He, he ordained it. Of course he understands it. Not going to expect more from you than what you're capable of or what you've been given. He's the one who determines both, and he knows what's fair. And I think, just as a personal note, this is important for us to remember. How easy is it for us to envy someone with more charisma, more money, more beauty, more friends, more intelligence, more ministry, more of whatever we are prone to idolize? How easy it is for us to compare ourselves. But we don't need to do that. Just being honest with you all, I've played the comparison game my whole life, and I still haven't figured out how to win. If any of you have, let me know. No, we don't need to compare ourselves because God is not comparing us to others. That's not, that's not how he works. Again, we are reminded much more of a loving and kind parent than a master with his slave. It's the loving parent who knows each child's strengths, right? And weaknesses. And from that knowledge, that parent nourishes, encourages, disciplines, and challenges his child. And so it is with our gracious God. But there's one more servant with whom the master must settle accounts. Let's go back to 
the parable in verse 24. He also had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. Now, for people who are kind of wired to take things at face value, who tend to be very sort of genuine people, maybe they're even called gullible. Uh, By the way, I count myself amongst that group. (laughs) There's a desire to think the best and give the benefit of the doubt at all times. That's just kind of how we're wired. But I continue to learn that this is often an unwise practice, to only look at the surface. Certainly, people generally are good, but they often have hidden motives, and as a result, they can be duplicitous. So it used to be that when I read this parable, I thought, this poor servant, he really was just afraid of failing. While not commendable, at least he didn't fritter the master's money away on worthless pursuits, and at least he was able to get back to the master what was his. Well, that's not what's happening here at all. A closer reading reveals that this servant was not fearful, but he was lazy. He had been given much and chose to do nothing with it. But most incriminating is what he says about the master. Can you believe this? I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. How could he say such things? Has not the master shown that he's anything but hard? Look at how he rewarded the first two servants. And how could he say that the master reaped where he did not sow and gathered where he had scattered no seed? Did not the master provide to him 75 pounds of gold, 2.3 million, and go and trade with it? As a plain matter of fact, the master gave this lazy and wicked servant everything that he needed to succeed. And yet here is the servant blaming the master. He saw what the other two servants did and he knew he was in trouble. I think, this, I think that's what happened at least. But instead of asking for forgiveness, he tried to justify himself by blaming the master for his failure. The fact is, that's nothing new. We can look at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve's sin, what happened? Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent. But no one, neither of them, were taking responsibility for their actions or asking God for forgiveness. How different would the world be if we simply took responsibility for our actions? In any case, the master was not fooled. In fact, he was offended at the gall of this servant to blame his laziness on the master. Verse 26, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Notice how the master asked this as a question as if to say, so you think I'm a terrible and mean man, reaping where I have not sowed, gathering where I've scattered no seed. Is that who you think that I am? If that was the case, then you should have at least put the money in the bank so that I could have earned interest on it. And instead you did nothing. He uses the wicked servant's own words to indict him. He's saying, I don't need to prove you were guilty of laziness. Your own words prove it. Continuing in verse 28. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, who has will, be given, will more be given, 
and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The punishment for the wicked and lazy slave is hell. What is hell? Just briefly. It is what Jesus says here. It's being cast away into the outer darkness. A place where God has removed his presence. Where the goodness that comes from him. Where we experience the simple things. Like the warm sun on our face on a beautiful fall day. The cooing of a baby, the embrace of a loved one, a delicious meal, where none of that exists. And not only does that not exist, it's a place where there will be active punishment. There will be weeping, weeping and gnashing of teeth at the wrath that's being suffered. But here's the thing. The people who are in hell that end up there, their rejection of God is final. And they actually want it that way. C.S. Lewis famously said the gates of hell are locked from the inside. That's not inspired scripture, but it succinctly summarizes the fact that everyone in hell will want out, but none can or will choose the only way, submission to God through Christ. It will be too late. Point three, the faithful and unfaithful separated. Let's read in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Now this last sort of parable or teaching is a culmination of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus has been building to this point. Let me just give you a couple verses to, to sort of make my case here. Matthew Chapter 24, verse 44, he says this, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Chapter 25, verse 13, right at the very end of the the parable of the ten virgins, he says this, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And then in the middle of the parable about the, the talents, in verse 19, he says this, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came, and settled accounts with them. Jesus makes the same point throughout. I'm coming again. It will be when you don't expect it and after a long time. But he adds another point in his last warning. He says that the master settled accounts with his servants. And that's what we have here. Jesus is talking about a final settling of accounts with humanity. He uses an image that people would readily recognize sheep and goats... Now, just for context, shepherds uh, would actually shepherd flocks of uh, goats and sheep together. But at night, the shepherd would separate the goats from the sheep because the goats actually needed to sleep undercover. They didn't have the, the blessing of a warm wool coat. And so he actually would put the goats in a place where they would be out from beneath the elements. Picking up in verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? 
And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now, this passage has, I would say, long been misunderstood. People have read it to mean that those who serve the low and the poor and the downtrodden will inherit the kingdom. Some have taken it so far as to say that this is the heart of Christianity, even the way to salvation. And they point to this passage as evidence that that's actually what Jesus, that's the gospel of Jesus. Acts of mercy. And it is a compelling call to do the practical work of loving people. It aligns with much of what scripture says, right? To care for the poor and needy. But is that really what Jesus is saying here? I'll just get you to the punchline. The answer is no. That's not what he's saying, unequivocally. Entrance into his kingdom. To be one of his sheep is by faith alone in Christ alone, not by works lest any single one of us should boast. What he's talking about is serving his redeemed people, the church. Let me give you three reasons why that's the case. First, Matthew presents Jesus as calling the needy my brothers. And in Matthew's gospel throughout, when he says my brothers, he always means fellow believers. So we see in verse 40, truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's number one. Number two, he says the least of these, the least is a superlative of little ones, which always denotes believers in Matthew. And lastly, in Matthew's prior use of little ones, which is from uh, chapter 10, verse 42, here's what it says. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. These little ones are messengers of God's kingdom. So what Jesus is talking about here are his redeemed people, the, the big C church. And so with that brief analysis, we conclude that Jesus is not talking about random and poor, needy people. He's talking about serving his people, the church, and doing good to others in the family of God is evidence of salvation but it is not salvation itself. Salvation results, or said another way, salvation results in covenant faithfulness and doing these kinds of things and, and from a heart of humble service. See, I just think it's interesting. See their surprise at Christ's recognition. What does he say? Or what do they say? When did we do these things for you, Jesus? There's a humility about Christ's redeemed, serving one another. Let's continue in verse 41 and look at the goat's response. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did, it, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The goats on Christ's left benefited from being in his church community while on earth, but at Christ's return, the true colors are revealed. And like the sheep, they're surprised at Christ's judgment. But like the lazy servant, what do they do? 
They try to justify themselves with excuses. When did we see you? We didn't see you ever like that. And like the lazy servant, they will go away into eternal punishment. Let's turn our eyes now and hearts and minds to application. I've got a few points of application for you. The first one is to be prepared. Just like the wise, the five wise virgins, they brought the extra oil with them and they were ready when the groom came for the party. The time, as we said from Wes Brown's example, the time to prepare for Christ's return is every day. And it's not too much to say, it's not too much to say that we ought to live as if his return could be today. Like it could be today. The trumpet could sound. And that would be it. Do not delay. Be prepared. Number two, be productive. Now, I, I struggled using the word productive because I think immediately, immediately we think of, uh, of works, right, of, a, of, a, of an earning almost of salvation. But that's, of course, not what I mean, brothers and sisters. And, of course, Jesus wouldn't mean that either. I think of uh, a quote from a gentleman um, who, uh, his name is Dallas Willard. A um, little bit of a Christian mystic, but don't let that scare you off. He's, he's, he's biblically faithful. Um, and he said this, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. And he says, earning is an attitude, effort is an action. I think that's very helpful as we kind of context before we dig a little bit into this. What does it mean to be productive? What are you saying, Ben? Well, I think it's obvious God has given each one of us gifts and talents and opportunities and resources and time in differing measures, right? Everyone here is different. But here's the main idea. These are God's, these are Christ's riches, not ours. We're stewards, we're servants. Our job is to make the most of what he's given us, right? Let me just give you some examples of, and you might think, well, I'm really busy. I mean, we got all kinds of excuses, Right? Let me just give you some examples. I'm going to come back to some of our excuses and try to knock them down a little bit. But let me just give you some practical examples of how you could do this. Like really easy ways, not hard ways, not ways that require like super special gifting and talent. Okay? So I'm basically setting this up for you have no excuse. Okay? <laughs> the first one is this. Serve in the nursery. Right? We always need ladies. We need ladies who are maybe past the age of having babies, right? So we can give those mamas a break. They can get an hour, hour and a half, some free babysitting. Family, that's a gift. <laughs> it may be a while since you were there, but that is a gift, right? What about a Sunday school helper? You don't even have to be a teacher. You can just show up and be an extra set of hands to wrangle those rascals, right? Try to keep them focused. You don't have to do any prep. You literally just have to show up. What about landscape? Huh? The church needs help. I mean, Phil Patron can't do it all himself, okay? Like, there's stuff that needs to be done around the church. You can do that, or you can help with, uh, with maybe the elderly in our church that, that have a, a home and that needs help. Maybe you're a handyman, right? You've got, you know how to fix stuff. Make yourself available to the deacons to go do those things. Maybe you're a good cook or baker. There are always needs for food, in this church. There's always somebody that needs a meal. Make a couple. Put them in your freezer. Have them ready to go. Cleaning. 
You know, maybe that's something that you can do with, with a, a young family who's just overwhelmed with a bunch of little kids. You can come in and clean their house for them as a love gift. What about an elderly person who can't, you know, keep on top of things? Maybe it's wisdom. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for 40 years, and there's a bunch of young people in this church who would just love to sit down and have coffee with you. You just have to initiate. You have that wisdom, brothers and sisters. You may think you don't, but you do. If we're always, if we're always navel-gazing, we're never going to see where we can serve or see the needs around us. So I just exhort you. Use the gifting. Use the time. Use the resources that Jesus has given you. They're his riches. They're not yours to sit on. They're not mine to sit on. So what gets in the way? Let's call a spade a spade. Laziness. We hide behind excuses like how busy you are, that our gifts aren't that important, or, or they aren't as good as someone else's. But all these are ultimately excuses for not working hard at what he's given us to do. Fear. Fear is another common excuse. We fear failure. We don't want to look foolish. But the worst thing you can do is sit on what he's given you, like the one-talent guy, and just bury it in the ground because you're afraid of failing. I actually think, and I think Jesus would say the same thing, that's far worse than trying and failing. You know, hockey great Wayne Gretzky's credited with this, this quote, and I, I think it captures what I'm trying to, to say here. You miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. And number three, dissatisfaction with your gifts. It's no good, we've talked about this already, it does no good to compare ourselves to others. The first two servants took what the master gave them and made the most of it. Learn to be happy with what God has provided and make the most of it. Again, this is not a call to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That has nothing to do with the Christian faith. It's a call to lean into the riches of God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit and to work hard at it. Put the effort in. Jonathan Edwards, you may be familiar with that Puritan preacher. He was kind of part of the Great Awakening in Puritan New England in the early 18th century. He wrote something called his 70 Resolutions. If you haven't ever read his resolutions, uh, they're fascinating. I, I uh, Google it. They're really interesting. He wrote these when he was a 20-year-old man. And effectively, they say, in, in some form or fashion, they say the same thing, which is this. I am going to make the most of everything that God has given me every single day. All 70 of them basically come back to that idea. But this is his preface. I want to read for you his preface. He says, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly ask him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. So should it be our attitude as we apply ourselves. Now lastly, be proven. Jesus has not left us without instructions. He's shown us that we must be prepared, that we must be productive with his riches and resources, and that to show the evidence of our love for him, we treat his kingdom people like we would treat him. You know, that was the difference between the goat and the sheep. The goats and the sheep. His people, the sheep, loved on other sheep. And they did it from a heart of gratitude and service to the shepherd. So if you want to manifest 
the evidence of God's saving grace in your life, act as if the person sitting next to you in the pew today is Christ himself. Treat the missionary in Dearborn or Italy or the army as Christ himself. Love the sojourner who is here from Burundi or Rwanda only for a season as if they are Christ themselves. That's how we are to love one another, with that kind of love. Now, the music team is going to come up and close us with a song about Christ's return today. And as they do, I only have one more thing for you. It is a gift that Jesus gave us all of these instructions about how to wait well. But most importantly, he gave us instructions on how to become one of his sheep. He's told us about our sin, how we are more than just flawed, imperfect, and unhealthy. In our natural state, it's, it's far worse than that. We rebel in our natural state. We rebel against God. Outside of his grace in our heart of hearts, we don't want him, or we say we may want him, but we want him in the way we want him to be. God, I'll accept you if you're the God I would create for myself. That's no different. That's no different than just outright saying, I don't even believe that there is a God. It's the same kind of rebellion. In our natural state, we are haters. But by his grace and love for us, he died for us. And being completely innocent of any sin, he took our place of judgment and died a sinner's death. And by faith in that act of love, we are made not only innocent, but righteous before God. And all you must do is repent and believe that Jesus has died for you. And here's the beautiful thing. He will by no means shut the door on you and put you out with the goats. You will be one of his beloved sheep, entering into his joy forever and eternal life. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, God, you are so good to us. God, you've given us instructions on how to wait well for you. It seems like a lot, but you've given us your riches. You've given us your Holy Spirit, everything we need to be successful in this endeavor. And when we fail you, as we often do, you love us, you pick us up, you dust us off, and you say, try again. And so we say, like a bride waiting for her groom, even so, Lord Jesus, please come. We love you, Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed.